At this year's Oscars, Oppenheimer took home the award for Best Picture, Emma Stone and Robert Downey Jr. also picked up wins, and Ryan Gosling brought the Kennergy. For a recap of all the highlights, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. This is State of Ukraine. I'm Steve Inskeep. We bring you NPR's best reporting on a war that is changing the world. And we start today with Russia's potential effort to change the borders of Ukraine. As we know, the Russian invasion is largely stalled. Russian officials have acknowledged significant casualties, which Ukrainians say are even higher. It's hard to go on social media these days without seeing pictures of blown up or abandoned Russian tanks. Don't know about you, but that's been my experience. In recent days, Russian forces backed away from Kyiv, which they once talked of capturing, and Russian officials talk instead of a focus on the eastern part of the country. That's the part where Russian-backed separatists have already proclaimed separate countries. So what's going on here? Ukrainians think they know. From Lviv, Ukraine, NPR's Alyssa Nadwerny spoke with their colleague Rachel Martin. So the head of the Ukrainian military intelligence said this new strategy is basically splitting Ukraine in two. You know, they called it, quote, a Korean scenario by creating a separate political entity in the Russian-occupied regions in the east. But Ukrainian officials are pushing for more negotiations with Russia, including over this disputed territory. And the argument there being that there are uh, there's a significant Russian population in the east exactly. and uh, that Russia would seek some kind of referendum to take those regions into their own control. Can you tell us what is the state of the war at this point? Yeah. Well, the Russian assault on Kiev, at least for now, seems to be on hold, but they are still hitting the cities like Mariupol in the south and Chernihiv in the north really hard. I mean, both places have been bombarded in in the first month of fighting. Mm -hmm. We saw over the weekend, though, an Mm -hmm. attack in the west, which has really been a safe haven for the Ukrainian diplomats, foreign diplomats, journalists, and, and this seemed to breach that security. That's right. You know, they hit several strategic locations in the West, mainly a number of fuel storage facilities, a military repair facility. Those are places in Lviv where it's been relatively safe. You know, the missile strikes also happened as President Biden was just across the border in Poland. And Lviv mayor actually called it a hello to Biden. Um, So that's kind of going on in the background of the shift of strategy. Meanwhile, it's just a humanitarian disaster there. The the numbers coming out of the UN are mm-hmm. staggering. Uh, upwards of three million people now have been forced to flee. Uh, Ten million displaced from their homes. Is that right? That's right. You know, Ukrainian officials are working to establish more evacuation routes, with some success over the weekend from places like Mariupol. Alina Bezkrova recently fled Mariupol, where she was trapped there for weeks. She spoke to my colleague Debbie Elliott. We would uh, haul water from a well about three miles away. We would cook on open fires. Under very heavy shelling, we stayed in the most inner part of the basement, just hoping to survive. She says there were 36 people down in that basement, 12 kids. They ate lunch by flashlights. She says her hands are scratched and burned from cooking over that open fire. She's here now in Lviv, but she's looking to leave Ukraine soon. That's Alyssa Nadwerny in Ukraine with our colleague Rachel Martin. Now, over the weekend, President Biden made a remark and took it back. At the end of his speech in Poland, the president said Russia's Vladimir Putin cannot remain in power. The White House staff quickly clarified, U.S. policy is not regime change. 
U.S. policy is to unplug Russia from much of the world economy and impose sanctions that punish Putin as well as the wealthy people close to him. Our next conversation shows why that policy is hard work to execute. Spencer Woodman of the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists has been writing about the way that Russia's so-called oligarchs hide their money. And he spoke with our colleague Daniel Kurtzleben. So let's start with something really basic. The term Russian oligarchs is in the news a lot right now. Tell us, what is the significance of Russian oligarchs? Where is their money from and why do they matter? So Russian oligarchs are, for the most part, people who over the past two decades have amassed billions of dollars, mostly by virtue of a close friendship or other personal or business acquaintance to Russian President Vladimir Putin. They live lavishly. They often own large parts or entire parts of what had been state-owned enterprises. Sometimes they make hundreds of millions or billions of dollars selling those same former state-owned enterprises back to the Russian state. And they, you know, by most accounts, um, they serve the interests of Vladimir Putin and often, in some cases, follow his orders and in some cases pay money into um, networks that are believed to be essentially his uh, Vladimir Putin's own secret uh, wallet. Hmm. So let's get into your reporting on how they're hiding their wealth. Are there common methods that a lot of these oligarchs use? Yeah, there are. You know, our years of reporting on this subject has really taught us that hundreds of millions and billions of dollars don't just hide themselves. There is a whole network of professionals. There are interconnected industries of financial and legal professionals who help this happen. There are lawyers in New York and Delaware and London who are expert in creating structures of opaque uh, shell companies and secretive trusts that even on their registration documents, those registration documents can be very hard to get. Even if you get them, front men and proxies might be listed. So even a law enforcement uh, agency that gets a hold of uh, private corporate registration documents might not have the full picture. Then there are the uh, luxury goods that these companies go and purchase. And these are luxury real estate. This is uh, yachts, uh, art, things like that. The yacht dealers, the art dealers, the people who sell private jets, they are all also expert in dealing with these opaque companies to often ask no questions and leave no fingerprints of the ultimate owner of these assets. Right. Well, on that note, you've reported on them. Let's turn our attention to uh, those enablers in this system, the bankers, the lawyers, the facilitators. Who are these people that are helping to hide the money as far as we know right now? Well, a lot of it starts with lawyers. Um, they kind of provide a f – you could almost see it as a fixing service that, you know, an oligarch comes to them. They say, hey, I want to park my money in London real estate. How can I do it secretively? Those lawyers often will go to what's known as a corporate formation agent. These can be based in London, they can be based in Delaware, they can be based in the British Virgin Islands, the Cayman Islands, or Cyprus. Uh, these are all places that have pretty extensive corporate secrecy laws that allow trusts and shell companies to operate with a lot of discretion while remaining completely anonymous. And that is what 
authorities now as they are seeking to freeze and seize assets of oligarchs all around the world, that's what they're up against. That's the big challenge, untangling all of this, um, especially after years of um, not paying as much attention as maybe they should have. And your organization, the International Consortium of Investigated Journalists, has reported for years on this dark offshore economy that allows wealthy and often corrupt individuals all over the world, not just in Russia, to move money around in secret. That was the subject of the Panama Papers and the Pandora Papers investigations. But you've also written that no true systemic change has occurred since those investigations were published. Why is that? I think uh, systemic change is, is a hard thing to come by, obviously. There have been significant incremental changes. Early last year, uh, Congress passed the Corporate Transparency Act, which uh, ushered in a lot of due diligence rules and things like that for professionals who deal with luxury goods and other things um, that have high volumes of cash and um, high risks for money laundering. But in the bigger picture, there has been a lot of pushback from industry, and there's been a lot of pushback from the wealthy interests who use these secretive uh, jurisdictions and opaque uh, vehicles like shell companies. Our last project, the Pandora Papers, probably the thing that was the most jaw-dropping finding was just the extent to which uh, politicians themselves uh, all around the world were invested in the offshore world. And these are the people who hold the most power to create a more uh, just economy. That was Spencer Woodman of the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. Spencer Woodman, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. This is State of Ukraine from NPR News. We bring you regular updates and insights on a war that is changing the world. For more coverage, you can check out Up First, which is NPR's morning news podcast, where we tell you everything you need to know to start your day. It takes about 10 minutes. This episode of State of Ukraine was produced by our colleague Sean Saldana and edited by Kelly Dickens. This is NPR News. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Stanford Medicine Children's Health. Their Children's Orthopedic and Sports Medicine Center, nationally ranked by U.S. News & World Report, helps young patients with sport injuries, scoliosis, and other orthopedic conditions recover and live healthy, active lives. Their multidisciplinary teams include experts in orthopedic surgery, sports medicine, and physical therapy. Learn more at stanfordchildrens.org. Here and Now, Anytime is a show that helps you make sense of the news. We're not about clickbait headlines or salacious soundbites. And in 20 to 30 minutes every afternoon, we'll make you an expert on your world. Ease into your evening with a steadier, calmer lens on the news. Listen to Here and Now, Anytime from NPR and WBUR, wherever you get your podcasts.